Hello everyone, I'm Paris Fox and I'd like to welcome you to 12 O'Clock High, a podcast on business leadership with Tom Fox hosted by Richard Lummis. What makes a great leader? Is it genetic or can you learn leadership skills? Join Tom Fox and Richard Lummis in this podcast where they consider leadership from a wide variety of perspectives, academic, behavioral science, history, popular culture, the movies, and much more. You'll learn about specific tactics and strategies that you can bring to your own leadership toolkit. 12 O'Clock High is a production of the Compliance Podcast Network. I'm here with Tom Fox for another episode of 12 O'Clock High, a podcast about leadership. In these discussions, we draw what we hope are interesting examples from our own experiences, history, business, literature, and politics to examine what constitutes good leadership and extract lessons we can use to improve our own leadership skills. Welcome back, Tom. Thank you, Richard. Today, we continue with our third part of our four-part series on George Washington. It's a little out of order because we're going to discuss both his role at the Continental Congress and his role uh, presiding over the Constitutional Convention. Um, I think these are really interesting uh, examples of of leadership skills in a very contentious setting. And uh, one of the things everyone comments on is the quality of the American founding fathers in terms of intellectual capacity, uh, leadership, and so forth. And for Washington to have become absolutely preeminent among them is is kind of startling when you when you look at who he was uh, dealing with so uh, what do you think about this Tom his role in the Continental Congress has always fascinated me and you sort of foreshadowed uh, I think some of the points I'm going to try and raise in our prior podcast on Washington as general and that was image uh, in the Continental Congress I think he took a, a back seat uh, in terms of um, not participation, but actually uh, debate, certainly in writing. I was not part of the, the group that either drafted the Declaration of Independence or uh, helped write any of the uh, original laws set out by the Continental Congress yet. He had a bearing, and more importantly, he wore his military uniform to the convention uh, or the Continental Congress every day. Uh, just to remind people, uh, hey, I'm a military guy. Uh, that may have been some of the ambition <laughs> we talked about uh, in one of the prior podcasts, but also it really conveyed that he was a military expert. And it came down to uh, a decision of who was going to lead the general of the armies, and that decision was between John Can- Hancock and himself. Uh, John Hancock, uh, this was before he became an insurance company. Uh, he was actually the, uh, I think, one of the one or two richest men in the colonies in that time. At that time, around shipping, and certainly everyone remembers his signature from the Declaration of Independence, uh, uh, where you know when you put your John Hancock down, it's become ubiquitous in our society. But uh, he desperately wanted to be the general of the armies and the Continental Congress to the air un- unending credit selected George Washington uh, to be the general over John Hancock, which probably would have been an unmitigated disaster. So, uh, but we did that, or we did that. The Continental Congress did that, I think, largely because of the way 
Washington projected his image and carried himself during the entire Continental Congress. I think I read he did not speak during the entire Continental Congress, at least in any of the formal sessions. He had a military bearing. He sat ramrod straight, and that had an effect on people. You mentioned also in a prior podcast his incorruptibility. Uh, I certainly think that was a part of it. He declined a salary uh, during the entire time he was general of the armies. Part of that was because he uh, was incorruptible. Part of that was he was one of the three richest men in Virginia because of his marriage to Martha Custis, uh, who was married to the one of the two richest men in Virginia before he died and she became a widow. So um, he had great personal wealth, um, and that great personal wealth enabled him uh, to uh, forego any salary. Uh, the Continental Congress did pay his expenses, and if you ever want a fun read, read George Washington's expenses. But um, all of that, I think, led to the decision uh, by the Continental Congress to make him the general of the armies. And uh, I think the revolution would have turned out very different had that decision not been made. There are a couple of things that really struck me about his role there. The um I think it would be very easy, especially for men with an elementary school education, to be a little insecure about speaking and writing uh, around the likes of Thomas Jefferson and Benjamin Franklin. But I don't think there's any evidence that that was the cause of his uh, reticence. Rather, I think it was the image he was projecting and wanted to project. Um, But in addition, something that we came across researching these podcasts, which I was unaware of was I briefly mentioned the almost 20 year gap between the the, uh, French and Indian war and his reappearance on the scene, the continental Congress. But among the things he was doing all that time was, uh, were reading and thinking. Um, He was actually uh, an extraordinarily well-read man, um, which was not something that you normally run across. Um, and the other thing that, that constantly struck me was his, his willingness to uh, cede prominence uh, to others. In this case, for instance, Jefferson um, uh, with the declaration and so forth. Um, it's, it was not, well, it was, it was an acknowledgement of their superiority in a, in a particular realm um, and, and a willingness to subordinate himself to the greater good. And the, the other thing that uh, I perhaps was not as aware of as I should have been, Richard, was during this time period between the end of the French and Indian War and the Continental Congress, Washington had been an active, uh, I don't know if you would call him a politician, but he's certainly been active in local Virginia politics in terms of opposition to British rule. He believed the Stamp Act of 1765 was an act of oppression. He believed that, uh, or helped, uh, he introduced a proposal drafted by George Mason, which called on Virginians to boycott English goods. Uh, After um, the Continental Congress was declared, he was active in Virginia in the first Virginia Convention, and he was uh, obviously selected as a delegate to the first Continental Congress, but he also uh, had trained uh, the Virginia militia, so he was uh, practicing active military roles uh, as well. And so he was a part of, uh, I hate to use the word revolutionary cabal, but he was certainly part of that leadership 
uh, in the Continental Congress. He emphasized or at least worked on the part that he was the subject matter expert in, which was the military. And you're absolutely right. Um, if I was sitting around with Jefferson and, and Franklin, and I, believe me, I wish I could at a dinner, I might be a little intimidated. Uh, uh, <laughs> So uh, yeah. even just sitting watching Jefferson eat by himself might be a little intimidating. Nevertheless, uh, he did secure that image. Uh, he had that image to secure the role. And then the last thing I want to bring up, and this has been, if there has been one theme throughout this podcast series that you and I have done, uh, qualities of a great leader, it's to listen. And he really seemed to listen in the Continental Congress. And uh, Remember, this is 1774, so this is listening is not rocket science. It's not even something new. Uh, and he showed that by listening and reading, he could synthesize uh, all of these concepts and make them his own, uh, really, uh, as he did when I talked about in the last uh, podcast, uh, his visionary leadership in terms of the war for, the, war for independence and establishing a republic. He, he was a Republican. Uh, and he had that drive throughout the Continental Congress as well. Now, you pointed out a couple of instances um, where it, it showed that his his thought about the proper form of government was actually very well developed uh, prior to the Continental Congress. Um, I think it was, it was, of course, mainly influenced by the Roman Republic and the examples uh, he personally admired most, probably Cato and Cincinnatus. Um, one of the things I did not know was that um, uh, all of his personal correspondence with Martha had been destroyed on his death, um, which deprives us, I think, of a great deal of insight into um, frank opinions um, about his, his uh, historical uh, peers and what was going on at the time. Um, and I, I think that's a real loss to history. Um, I would love to have seen that. But again, he was... He was very careful to keep that private and make sure that it did not interfere um, with his with his public persona or the job that he uh, felt that he had to do. Um, what about his role in the Constitutional uh, Convention? Well, here, Richard, uh, I thought he, he his clarion call for a strong union. Uh, the Constitutional Convention, of course, came after the Articles of Confederation, uh, Certainly today, you and I recognize the Articles of Confederation as not something that worked. Uh, I'm not sure it was a disaster, but it certainly led to a second constitutional convention. And Washington was one of the leaders in the call for a strong union, a strong federal government. We'll see uh, some examples of that when uh, he becomes president. But uh, I think simply uh, his bearing and his stature um, from being general of the army and resigning in the way he did, going back to Mount Vernon, yet being recalled to national service, I, I was um, struck once again uh, that he did accede to the call. And uh, the, to me, the clearest thing he brought to the uh, Constitutional Convention was this uh, clarion call for a strong union of the states. And I think the other thing that you'd mentioned about his role in the Continental Congress was even more pronounced here. Um, in his role as presiding officer, he almost never spoke. Um, he did not want to be identified with any particular faction. He apparently would um, would speak out quite forcefully about his opinions within the Virginia delegation. But within the convention as a whole, 
he um, he wanted to appear above that, and and he did, and I think that's one reason he was he was so trusted. And his uh, his appearance at the convention itself, uh, many felt uh, led to induced rather reluctant states to to send delegates at a time when it was not clear if the constitutional convention was was actually a legal. Um, body. So he, he really had a great personal uh, reputation throughout the colonies. And uh, sometimes his presence alone was enough to uh, garner goodwill uh, in a place that many others uh, were not able to do it. And I, I think part of that was his, his willingness. Well, part of it is what we've talked about, his, his reputation. Um, he was very careful about guarding it um, in all aspects of his life. Um, but but especially with respect to um, the old-fashioned concept of honor and morality and duty, his reputation throughout his life for all those was absolutely spotless. So, Richard, uh, I guess from both of these two deliberative bodies, we've seen a style of leadership. Obviously, he was not Ben Franklin or Thomas Jefferson or James Madison uh, or any of those uh, greater orators or greater writers. Uh, yet, the leadership skills he brought to bear for both of these deliberative bodies, I think, helped form the basis of the American Constitution and the American experiment and the American experience. Uh, so it shows that leadership can uh, not only have many different forms, but also can manifest itself in many different ways some 230 years later. Well, and in our next uh, podcast on George Washington, I think we're going to cover that in more detail because the Constitution is famously vague on a lot of things, and his role as first president, a lot of it got fleshed out basically by his personal example, and uh, and it's been followed ever since, which is a shameless plug for our next uh, episode. Um, so for now, this is Richard Lemus and Tom Fox with 12 O'Clock High. Hope you'll listen in next time. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox again. I'd like to thank you for listening to this episode of 12 O'Clock High. 12 O'Clock High is a production of the Compliance Podcast Network and a proud member of C-Suite Radio. We would greatly appreciate it if you would give us a rating on iTunes. It would help get out the word about this most unique podcast. Richard Lummis and I will be back next week where we end our George Washington series by looking at leadership lessons from Washington as president. I know you'll enjoy it. Thanks again for listening. We look forward to visiting with you again. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.